been our prayer as we started this letter to the Hebrews that each of you will determine in your own heart and in your own life to live a life worthy of the great price that was paid for your salvation in understanding a holy and righteous God who will judge sin, sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that by receiving that forgiveness, we would walk worthy of that price that was paid in holiness unto the Lord. In this letter to Hebrews, we'll see woven throughout it is our sinful state laid side by side with the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And through this study, we'll know Jesus better. And if we know Jesus better, then hopefully our lives will better reflect him. And the author of Hebrews writes in such a way that it exposes our sin and it exposes our weakness in some cases in certain areas of our life as being directly related to our lack of knowledge of who Jesus is and what salvation truly means. Because Jesus is the one through whom God has spoken to us in these last days. Jesus, the word of God, the living word of God, as John tells us. Today, in our section, we need to be mindful of the thoughts that we think. Because if our minds, and honestly, it's hard living in Southern California and not being consumed without being consumed with materialism. You know, if our minds are consumed with material things, then we will be people that are materialistic because our actions will follow our thoughts and our desires. And if our minds, though, however, are focused upon living a life that pleases the Lord, we'll find that he meets us there with all of his unexpected and undeserving blessings upon our lives. If our minds are focused upon living a life that pleases ourselves, which we naturally are inclined to do, we will find ourselves sooner or later disillusioned with all the things that the world tells us would make us happy. Everything that the world sells us, markets to us, saying this is what you need to experience true joy. You find out, I think even more so with the upcoming generations at a much younger age, how empty the world is, even with all that it has to offer. See, the world is incapable of feeling, filling that void that only God can fill. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter where you live or what you drive or what your position is or who you might be holding the hand of. Your relationships, your status, your reputation, your online presence, your influence. It does not matter what you have in this life. It will not fill the God-shaped void that we've been created with. And so if we as the church, as Christians, choose to set our minds upon things that are above, we will find that God will meet us exactly where we're at and we'll be consumed with the love of Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Paul writes and says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. That's hard to do. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha, Jesus speaking. We're going through this in our study on, through the Re uh, book of Revelation at house groups. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The beginning and the end. Jesus 
was the beginning of all things and he is the end of all things. And this is how Jesus was able to say to the Pharisees of his day, before Abraham was, I am. If you look at verse one of Hebrews one, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. In John 1, I'll read verses 1 through 4. This is the fourth gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. We understand that Jesus is the one behind all that exists in our creation. We just read from John that without him, nothing was made that was made. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, it says, speaking of Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God. And we'll get more from this passage a little bit later on, but it says he's the firstborn over all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So Jesus, what we're looking at here in Hebrews, He is the connection between everything that has begun and everything that will end and then everything in between. As we read in Colossians that all things are not only created, but all things are, all things consist or are held together. Lord, you hold all things in your hand and all that is in your hand you hold together. So there's no existence apart from Jesus. Even those who have rejected God in so doing have in all honesty, rejected the very one that gave them breath and holds their breath in his hand. So it's by Jesus that all things were spoken into existence. It's by Jesus that all creation is is held together. He holds them by his power. He upholds each moment of life as we know it until the end. This is the one who laid down his life for the sins of the world. This is the one through whom God is revealed to his creation. This is the one that we call Savior and God. In verse three, it says, who being in the brightness, or who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, who is the brightness of his glory, the image of his Father. You know, if you were a sinful person, it would be impossible to approach God. You would be consumed. God would not look upon sin. Even back in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, in chapter 33, verses 20 through 23, Moses, whom we all have heard of, had an interaction with God. But this interaction would have killed him if he would not have been protected by the Lord. I'll read it for you so you can hear it for yourself. The Lord said to Moses, Moses, you cannot see my face, 
This is verse 20 of Exodus 33. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord basically told Moses, this is too much for any human being to experience. You've seen God Almighty. You can't even comprehend what it would be like to see God. And so he says, I will cause my presence to pass by, but I will hold you with my hand and protect you in the cleft of the rock. And then as I pass by, you can see at that point. The light of God's glory was so illuminating to Moses that we read of the effects, that we read of the effects of Moses, his experience, Moses' experience in the following verses in Exodus 34, verses 29 through 33. I'll read it to you so you can get the big picture. It says, now it was so that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, from that meeting with God, And the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he had come down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron, his brother, and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came near and he gave them as the commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, or with them rather, he put a veil on his face. You seen those tack lights that are extremely bright, shine? That was Moses' face. It... Even being held where he couldn't see the face of the Lord, the glory of God passed by and it charged his battery. His face was radiating light from being in the presence of the one who is the light of the world. This was the effect of God protecting Moses from the brightness of his glory. And so when you read verse 3 again, it says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, you get a little greater understanding of who Jesus is. He is the radiating light of God's glory. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 we read, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So even our darkest parts of our life, the light of Christ shines. As dark as the world gets, the light of Christ still shines. Before there was even a world to live life in, God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's God. It's God who has shined the light of the gospel through Jesus into our sinful hearts. It's God who will shine even in your darkest moments. And the reason that we don't understand really what Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, he said, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We do not even fully understand that. You follow me, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. 
Before there was even a world to live in, I was the one who created all things. And we read in Hebrews that no man can see God the Father and live, and no one has seen the Father except the Son. And as Jesus told his disciples in John 6, verse 46, he says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Jesus said, I've seen the Father. And his disciples later on would come up to Jesus and say, Lord, show us the Father. We want to see him. And Jesus replies in John 14, 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus, God incarnate, God in human flesh. Paul describes it in Philippians 2, 6, that Jesus is being, as being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Interesting in the Greek language, which you know the New Testament was written in, but in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, where it says Jesus being in the form, the Greek word there can be described as this, or defined as this, rather, and it says, describes that which a man is in his very essence and which cannot be changed. It describes that part of a man which in any circumstance remains the same. Being in the form. Being in the form. When Paul uses that word in Philippians, being, he is informing us that Jesus' deity did not cease to exist when he took upon himself skin and bones. Because some have looked at this passage and have declared that Jesus was not God. That Jesus, they would say, ceased being God when he became a man. But for your own reference, in the Greek language, there are two words to be aware of when it pertains to our one English word, form. It says, being in the form of God, Philippians 2.6. The word that is used there in Philippians 2.6 for form is a word that is pronounced marfe. It's a word that is used to describe the essential form which never alters. Never alters. The word that is not used for another word that translates into our English word form. So there's two Greek words and we have one English word form, which we read in Philippians 2.6. The word that was used was the word that means that something never changes. It never alters. The other word that was not used is a word pronounced, well, it sounds phonetically like this, schema. This word, if they would have translated, if that would have been the Greek word used there in Philippians 2.6, it would have meant that outward form changes with the circumstances. It can change from time to time. It could be partially God. It could not be God. It could be God. It could change. That's the word that was not used, and that was intentional. It was intentional because we need to understand that Jesus is not a created being, He is not an angel. He is not lesser than God. He is God. He is the form, the physical, what we have seen here in the scriptures. He is the embodiment of God. He never ceased to be God. So Jesus' deity was never altered by time or circumstance. 
That inmost nature of God was expressed through Jesus. Jesus is a pre-incarnate. Jesus was in pre-incarnate existence, meaning that he existed before he came to earth. That's what we're reading about in Hebrews. He existed before he had a human body. He did not cease to be God when he was clothed in humanity. And we see that from the language used there, even in Philippians 2, 6, being and form. The writer knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus is God. And even that phrase, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, describes how Jesus in human form was not in a place of being less than God, for he was still God. As if you were trying to grasp for, you know, the divine, like many men and women are today. I will be God. I am God. No, Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God because that's who he was. He had priority and supremacy over all things. He existed before time. And supremely above all that is created, for he created all things. He is the creator. And I'll say this again. Jesus was not created. Nor is he the half-brother of Lucifer, as they teach in the Book of Mormon. Jesus is not less than Jehovah, as the Jehovah Witnesses teach. It's important to understand that, because there are a lot of false teachings when it comes to who Jesus is. In Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn over all creation. This Greek word, where it says image, it's a really cool word. It's spelled E-I-K-O-N, but we spell it I-C-O-N, icon. That Jesus is the exact, the exact representation and revelation of God. He is the icon. He is the revelation and the human appearance of the invisible God. We know that God is spirit and Jesus is the embodiment of God in human form. And it says in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus carries all things in creation by the word of his power. It doesn't get any more clear than that. Jesus is God. See, some people today will say, well, Jesus never declared to be God. You know, he's a great man. He's a prophet. He's a spiritual leader. He's an influencer. You know, he's never God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they understood exactly who Jesus claimed to be. And if you're any bit of a historian and you're trying to get to the facts, you would evaluate someone's statement by how it was perceived, how it was received, what was exactly said. So that I could have a greater understanding of what was meant, the motives behind it, the thought behind it, the context of everything that was being communicated. The religious leaders of Jesus' day knew exactly what Jesus declared to be, that he was God. In John 5, 18, it says, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill Jesus because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father. You ready for this? Making himself equal with God. That's who we are talking about today. This is who Jesus said he was. This is who the people of his day believed he was saying he was. 
And this is who we know him as today. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He created all things. He knows how everything works. He holds it together. And through science and the study of our universe, we just see every day how complex nature is, how complex our world is. We're discovering new things about the human body, our environment, the galaxies, you name it. It's amazing. And Jesus holds it all together by the word of his power. And it says in verse three, when he had himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here we see in the latter part of verse three, the two parts of Jesus' work, two distinct works of Jesus. Number one, purging our sins. And number two, sitting down in heaven. What do you do to work through a guilty conscience? What do you do when you know that you've done something wrong and, you know, no matter how you try to stuff it and not address it or no matter how long you try to ignore it, it still comes back to the surface? Like, how do you deal with even the shame associated with sin? wrongdoing, mistakes. What we all have. We've all done things that were shameful. We've all done things that are sinful. The Bible actually says that all have sin. So what do we do? How do we live? When it says that Jesus purged our sins, it says he removes our guilt and he purifies us. So Jesus personally purged our sins, which speaks of this. Please pay attention. Not only removing our sin, not only removing the consequences of our sin, but he also removed our shame. So Jesus not only died to remove our sin, but to remove our shame that was associated with that sin. We would kind of call it nowadays the baggage that we carry with us, our shame. And so often we forget that there are two sides to that coin, that the purging of sins, the forgiveness of sins is legitimate. That is a real thing. That happens. You are forgiven. But Jesus didn't just die for your sin. He died for your shame too. To remove the shame. And that's why Paul writes, no doubt, in Romans 8, 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus purged our sins, we have access to the throne of God. That's you. It's not just, oh, the pastor does. He has special access granted. Well, you know, well, actually, that is true. I do. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. No, we all have the same access to the throne of grace because of Jesus and what that means to you and to me, those who have faith in Jesus have been granted access to the holy place where God dwells. That place where no man can see God and live, that place in the Old Testament where the holy of holies was separated from the normal person where I could never approach God. We've not only been given a ticket to an eternity in heaven, but we find that the Lord is our present help in our time of need. Forgiving sin, removing shame. And this perfect work upon, of Jesus upon the cross as he cried out, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Purging our sin, taking upon himself the shame of the cross so that our shame might be done away with. 
We'll study it later, but in Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So guess what? Jesus' shame removed ours. Our sins he removed by taking them upon himself and as it was laid upon him, the sin of us all. So we glory in the great things that Jesus has done because we have guilt and we have shame because that's the consequences of sin. That's the reality of everyday life, that we reap what we sow. But for those who are in Christ, they are a new creation, the Bible says. The old things have passed away. Your baggage has been removed. You know, traveling, you don't like losing your baggage. But when it comes to spiritual things, I don't mind losing that baggage. Lord, take it. Bury it in the deepest part of the sea as he says he will. That's our shame. And so our Jesus is almighty God. He's not only purged our sins, but he has sat down at the right hand of majesty. And we lose sight of that elevated place of Jesus because I think so often we, we live down here in the earthly realm. That's what we do as humans. We miss the second half, which is the eternal spiritual perspective. Oh, it's great. God forgave me of my sins. He took away my shame. Well, listen, that same God who laid down his life for you, the one and only son of God, is now seated on his throne. And in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it says he has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sin. You know how many people do terrible things because of guilt, because of shame, because of sin? And as much as there are people out there that want to promote, hey, be a good person, and you know, you got to start compensating for all your past mistakes, it doesn't deal with the issue of a sinful heart with shame. Nothing can deal with that except for God alone. It does not matter what you do. You will never be able to cover your own sin. It does not matter how many good things you're able to pile up on your account. They do not transfer over. There is no exchange rate for earthly good deeds and spiritual righteousness. They are completely separate. The only way you get to heaven is through faith in Jesus. Mankind's greatest problem is sin. Period. There is no philosophy. There is no effort of man that can fix man's brokenness from sin. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Delivers us from darkness, forgives us of our sins, removes our shame. He sets us free from the power of darkness. He transfers us, if you will, into his kingdom. He's ransomed us from the bondage of the devil and he has made us pure in his sight. This is the relationship with Jesus that I hope that you are cultivating. This is not a religion. This is not man's attempt to reach God. 
This isn't, hey, you do this and you do that and maybe you'll be good enough. This is you will never be good enough and that's why God sent Jesus to forgive you of your sins. The same one that created all the world, the same one that holds it all together, humbled himself. He did not lose his deity. He was fully God. He laid down his life for the sins of the world. And after he had done what he said he was going to do, pay the price for our sins, he ascended to heaven and that's where he is this very moment. That is the God that we serve. He is not limited by anything. He is over all things. And it's becoming more and more common for false doctrines to circulate in the church. I mean, you can expect false teachings and lies and deceptions of Satan to be outside of the church. But when the light that is meant to be light, which is the church, is darkness, how great is that darkness? And that's why, if this is your church, the whole reason why we are here is to glorify the Lord and to teach you what the word of God says so that you might be able to in your own personal life, in your marriage, with your children, with your job, as you interact in the world around you, that you might know the truth, that it might set you free, that you might shine as a light in the dark world because Jesus said, I am the light of the world and if the light of the world is in me, then I must let my light shine before men that they see the way that I live and the way that I communicate and glorify my Father in heaven. That's why I'm here. I mean, all the lies from Satan, they're all the same lies. It's the same old stuff throughout history except they're rebranded and repackaged to be something new. You know, how many companies have rebranded or repackaged the same product? Satan started it first. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And every generation, it's the same thing with new packaging. Same lie, hey, this will make you happy, this will make you feel good, this is everything you never knew you always wanted. And it's the same thing. And you're not able to see how cyclical that is unless you have wisdom from the Lord to say, hey, I know what God's word says. I recognize this. I've seen this before. I've experienced it before. Unfortunately, I know that the word of God is true. But more often than not, the lies from Satan, they seem so believable, so enticing. I mean, I guess if we're going to be honest here, Satan wouldn't be very good at his job if the everyday person would look at what Satan was presenting and cry, lies! I reject that. Warren Wearsby said this, and this is where we'll conclude. The false teachers of our own day, they would not necessarily deny the importance of Jesus Christ. They would simply dethrone him, giving him prominence but not preeminence, end of quote. The Baha'i faith, they believe that there is God and like a sun with many different rays emanating different versions of God. It could be Jesus, it could be Muhammad, it could be Moses, it could be Confucius, it could be whoever. Every religion will dethrone Jesus. I know who Jesus said he is. I know that there were not 
words that could be mistaken, like go one way or the other. It was very, 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 very clear. Jesus is God. He is not the number two. He is not the number three. He's not co like he is God. And so every other religion will say, no, Jesus is a great prophet. You know, Jesus was a great man. You know, he was, he did good things. They'll give him a prominent place in history, but they don't give him preeminence. And so that's why we're determined to proclaim Jesus, creator, savior, God. Make no mistake about it. Because when it comes down to it, what you do with Jesus is the deciding factor between eternal damnation and eternal life. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. When you look at other religions, hey, who do you say Jesus is? Not God. Not the only way to get to heaven. And then you should say, aha, I see. And you'll know that even with those that would call themselves Christians, where does Jesus slot into your religion? Where does Jesus factor into how you're saved? And if Jesus is not equal with God, that is called a cult. That's important to understand. That's the definition of taking who Jesus said he was as God and lowering him to a place where he is less than God. So you know what the truth is, and the truth will set you free. And if you have friends or family or people that are trying to find the truth, what a great opportunity to be able to share the truth with someone because you have the truth. So Jesus created all things, holds it all together, purged our sins, and sat down in the heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for who you are. Lord, as we look at the big picture, the doctrine of what the entire Bible has to say about your character, your power, what you have done, who Jesus is. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a growing understanding of who you are. I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be focused on you. I pray that you would help us to be men and women after your own heart. Lord, if we have hidden sins, we repent from those things and ask that you would forgive us, Lord, and help us, Lord, in those areas that we struggle in. And Lord, I pray that whatever your plan is for our church, which is really your church, Lord, and we're stewards of it. Lord, whatever your plan is for your church here at Vision City, Lord, we ask, God, that we would be a church that is collectively walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, being a light in a dark world and ready to be used by you in ways that we would never have even dreamed of. So Lord, we ask that you would go before us, prepare our way and bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you need prayer for anything, I our prayer team is going to be up here in the front on my right, on your left. Uh, we'd love to come alongside and pray for you, whatever prayer requests you may have. May the Lord bless you, may he keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, may he be gracious unto you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name.